welcome back to MERS Monday. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, Westland City Clerk Richard LeBlanc would be shocked if voter turnout reaches 20% in his city's upcoming mayoral election, where State Rep Kevin Coleman is going up against interim mayor Mike Londo. President Laura Sherman of the Michigan Energy Innovation Business Council imagines it will be fairly hard to prove they need timeline extensions under Senate Democrats' Clean Energy by 2040 package. Also, Michigan Health Council CEO Craig Donahue discusses a report projecting that nearly all health care occupations in the state will experience labor shortages between now and 2032. Now here's MERS reporter Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, and the boss John Ruhring. so much, Jeff Smith, who's taking over for Mark Bayshore this week for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. We are warming up today with our roundtable discussion where pundits and participants can share their hot takes and take their personal deep dives into what's going on in Michigan politics. We are joined by Richard LeBlanc, a former Democratic state rep from Westland, who's currently serving as the Westland city clerk. How are you doing today, Richard? I'm great, Samantha. It's good to be part of your uh, podcast today. I do, with tomorrow, Tuesday being Halloween, I do want to kick off things with a fun question, if you all are not opposed. Uh, Let's do it. My fun question is, my holiday question, if we were to make a haunted house for Michigan politics, what would go into the haunted house? What do you think, Kyle? I think it's got to be Rick Johnson with a hookah. You know, kind of like the the cat in um, Alice in Wonderland. Would it be would it be a hookah or would it be like a medical marijuana bong? Ah, uh, <laughs> either one. How about you, John? What's going in your haunted house? Probably the ghost of the state Republican Party. Ooh. <laughs> that's gonna, that's going to generate some heat, but no, just because they they you know. I don't think they're as strong as they've been in the past. My nickname is for kind of where we are right now in the capital is Energy Palooza, specifically because I covered the clean energy by 2040 legislation. And I personally would say in my haunted house, there would be a municipal incinerator because I'm curious to see how that gets debated on because the legislation does allow for those to continue. Uh, I would also add in my personal haunted house for politics, I would say that there would be a um, a spouse that you can hand over your assets to and the financial disclosure legislation would not Ooh. find out. <laughs> this is a uh, an on-point crowd here. Yeah, <laughs> I want to hear what yours is. What's yours, Richard? Who's in your haunted you know, house? Hey, I, I'm a clerk these days, so mine's going to be a voting ballot. Uh, put whoever you want on it, pick from the lot, and uh, get ready to get scared. Okay, so with that being said, obviously there is an election coming up in the city of Westland. A lot of people in Lansing are paying attention to the mayoral race over there because we have a current state rep, Kevin Coleman, who's running. Can you tell us a little bit more about the energy right now going into your municipal election? Yeah, so... Kyle said, hey, one of the things we want to talk about is how would you gauge the interest right now? And I find it interesting at this point because of a few things. Number one, social media is a buzz with regard to Westland residents in this election. But I haven't, with the exception of MERS and Gomor, I haven't seen too much outside interest in this race. And to be forthright, our our, our gauge, if you will, you know, what we expect the turnout to be is influenced by absentee ballots. As of today, we have effectively seven and a half days to go until the election has concluded. And of the only 11,000 ballots we sent out, we have about 5,500 returns. So we're way behind the pace. We would have expected to be at 60, maybe even 70% returned by today with one week to go. And uh, we're just not there yet. You know, there's a couple of things about that. One, that 
we're the only Wayne County community that's going to participate in early voting. Our early voting begins this Thursday. It's for three days. And, you know, my thought is that perhaps there are some people who have an absentee ballot. They're going to just bring it back, give it to us and early vote. But in terms of interest, I'd say that it's just it's different than what I expected it to be. We had we had about 15 and a half percent voter turnout for the primary election. I'll be shocked if we get to 20 for the general. Why do you think that is, Richard? Because this is an open mayoral race, kind of. I mean, because the incumbent, if you will, Michael Londo was appointed. He has to be reelected in order to continue to serve. You'd think that there would be all, all sorts of buzz. Yeah, you know, Kyle, that it's a great observation, and, and I agree with that. But I'd say that the majority of interest right now, at least that's been expressed publicly, is social media. It's strictly relegated to Facebook primarily. And, uh, and I'll repeat myself, it's insider baseball. This is Westland stuff. And I don't know, uh, with one exception, I think that there may be a very small segment of the voting population that has been turned away or turned off by some of the negative mailers that have been distributed throughout town you know somebody somebody with a fair amount of money and a uh, secret identity because they have a committee that has a false name i mean it's not a committee though they claim they are it does not exist They're, they probably spent about 30 grand so far throughout the city and at the doors which i've not been to by the way uh, but at the doors i'm told that if people bring up that topic, they say, you know, I, I wish it weren't that way and I really don't care for that. The negative mailers, they're all against Londo, right? There isn't any negative stuff yeah. going against Kevin Coleman. That's right, yep. What do you make of that? There's somebody there's somebody who's got a grudge on, on uh, Londo then. That's one way to put it. As I've said, each of the negative pieces, uh, no exceptions, each of them, have come from this fake committee. And as the four of us know, and others outside this podcast, you're required to detail contributions and spending. And this so-called group uh, has spent a lot of money. They are not willing to identify themselves legitimately. And again, this boils down to Westland, like who, beyond Westland really cares who the mayor is. I mean, Lansing doesn't care with the exception of the potential change in the legislature, but other towns around us, they don't care who the mayor is. You know, some of your large, I'll call them uh, political funders, they don't give a darn. They'll work with uh, potentially anybody that does get elected. So if you look at it that way, there are there's about 84,000 people who will be impacted, but you know that's that's our population. But the reality is that there are two people that are most interested in this election. One of them may be benefiting by the negative mailers. The other certainly is not. Uh, the incumbent mayor has indicated he's not participating in negative mailers whatsoever against his opponent. And so, you know, really it's up to the voters to decide, but I, I expressed to you a few weeks ago when we talked, I've been around a long time in this town. You know, I've, I've got 35 years worth of public service and I have not seen this level of negativity since 1989, since a mayor who came in and defeated an incumbent went for reelection. But even during that time, People identified themselves. They said, hey, this is who we are. This is who we don't want. But we don't have that today. It's this mysterious group. It's called the Wayne County Equitable Leadership Fund. That's the name of the fund. And I yep. asked Captain Coleman about it. He said he had no knowledge of who this could be. He said that at a certain point, somebody had come to him and asked if he wanted to be involved in some way. And he said he did not want to be involved. And he got the sense that they were just going to go and do whatever without him. 
but he claims he has nothing to do with it. That could very well be true. I don't know if he identified to you who came to him. I guess if he did, then obviously we may know who's part of it. But these mailers, first of all, they're full color, they're big, they're they're sent, you know, um, through the post office, and they're going to all houses. It's a lot of money. Well, I know that they're being described as nasty, but could I just please ask for a bit of a verbal illustration for our listeners? Like, how, how nasty are we talking here? You know, some of the stuff, there, there's, as, as far as I recall, there's about three or four pieces. And some of them describe or illustrate things that were allegedly part of the incumbent mayor's background involving, I'll call it conduct or phrases that were used during uh, closed private events. And, you know, we've all seen some of the things where we take a saying and then we make it appear as though it was a newspaper headline and we have a jagged edge on it. You know, this newspaper said this, that newspaper said that. I would just say that generally speaking, it's just not complimentary. And whether it's partially true or not, there are definitely things within it that are false. And that type of campaigning, I mean, you know, there's a certain segment of the voting population that probably enjoys it, but I don't know that it gets widespread support. So based on your comments, is, am I fair to say you're not sure whether this is a group from in, inside your city or outstate or outside the city? Is that fair? Uh, no, John. Actually, I think it's a group from within the city. Do you? Okay. I do. Uh, I don't think that folks outside of Westland really have a political preference as to who becomes elected as mayor of Westland. I mean, if you think about it, what is it that we could do that would provide great benefit to an outstate entity that's not already happening? I want to get your prediction. What do you think is going to happen next <laughs> Tuesday? We think in 5248? I think that is that is very good, if not closer. Okay. Uh, I, I think it's going to be very close. I think it's going to be a little bit contentious on election day. I mean, you know, the clerk on election day, we get it from many sides. You know, we get residents that complain about certain things. The state may contact us regarding certain things. Candidates will contact us regarding certain things, and there will be conduct at the precincts that is unbecoming, let's say, and to a degree, perhaps intolerable legally. So I think it's going to be close. I I don't think it's going to be pretty when it's all done. But you think Londo is going to win, right? I do. I, you know, one of the things that I had been asked prior to the primary and I was only involved as a clerk in the primary. What do you think is going to happen? I said, I think it's going to be close. And I think that the state rep, with all the real estate and resources a state rep has, is going to slightly prevail. I, I did think that uh, the representative would be victorious slightly in the primary. That didn't happen. There were some people that were su surprised. The mayor's team was not surprised because they worked hard, they spent the money, they did what they had to do. And so, you know, it turned out like they thought it would. But what has happened since then is that some of the people who thought, hmm, you know, what's the chance for the Democratic majority to get a slight nick come November 8, day after election? Uh, you know, those perceptions may have changed a little bit. I do think that the incumbent mayor, Mike Lando, will win. But whatever happens, happens. There's going to be, you know, a low turnout in terms of my opinion. And that's what I expect to happen. I, I want to poke your brain as a former state rep, as a former Democratic Ooh. state rep. All right. <laughs> There's a lot of one could say there's a lot of grievances getting aired right now, and there is a bit of concern and fear among Democrats of what could happen to their majority in the House. One thing that I do wonder, though, is that why don't you see 
any of these grievances being targeted toward, you know, state rep Kevin Coleman or state rep Lori Stone over in Warren? Why does why is no one like, why are you running for mayor? What about even Democrats in your own community? Aren't they a bit nervous or upset about this? Uh, well, I, I guess I'd answer the first part of it first, and that is that I'm going to assume it's fair to say a replacement for each or both of those Democratic state reps will be a Democrat. It may take some time, and maybe during that period of time, the Democrats are going to have to cool down a little bit. But Democrats are getting elected in Westland. Democrats going to get elected in Warren. So there's that. As far as criticism, potential criticism toward either of the candidates, I can only speak as to what I think I know. And that is because some folks say, hey, that's what politicians do. They look for a better opportunity. And so if they think that this is better, that's where they're going. Now, quite frankly, I've said to folks that my time in the legislature came about during a period of time where it was the worst economy in my long lifetime. And we had no money to spend. And when I went there, I went there voluntarily. I got the support of the electorate, but it was really for a, a reason that was not so nice. I didn't want someone else to get the job. But when I went there, I took a heck of a financial hit you know, as far as our income. And my wife and I, we've been a single income household since the day we got married 43 plus years ago. And so it hurt, but it was the best job I probably ever had. As fortunate as I am to be Westland City Clerk, my time in the legislature was absolutely fabulous, despite all of the the horrors that came about during my, my, um, uh, well, when I was sleeping, I had nightmares about some of that stuff, but but the good far outweighed the bad. And if I were there, I wouldn't want to leave. I really wouldn't. But Richard, it's so contentious right now in the Democratic caucus. You've got uh, these new freshmen who want to move things along quickly and the leadership's trying to kind of figure out how to keep majority. I mean, this contention, is that is that a new thing within the Democratic caucus? No. Why, why is know. that? I think that everybody comes there with their own personal, even if they won't admit it, agenda. And they want things done the way they want things done, or they want to bring home whatever package that they campaigned on. I try to remind myself that seniority brings about privilege. And if you gain some time in the legislature and you have the ability to get support for the things you want and you know how to horse trade, and you're willing to support some things with a vote that maybe are not on your list of objectives, you might get something in return. But as a freshman, perhaps, you know, those methods are not well enough known yet. And I, I mean, I'll tell you, just as an outsider today looking, I can't imagine what else the Democrats have left to do. I think it's interesting. Well, that was one of, my, one of my questions. What grade would you give, not just the legislative leaders, but this is the first time state government's been run by Democrats in a long, long, long time. What grade would you give the state overall, or the Democrats overall in running the state? John, I have a slanted perspective. So I'm going to give preamble before I give that grade. When I was in the legislature, just before I became a candidate, I became a Democrat. And I came into the legislature being a pro-life, Second Amendment supporter, fiscal conservative, living in Westland where Democrats are going to get elected. There were a number of things that the caucus wanted that I wanted no part of. And there came a point during my, I think it was my second term, where because of my non-support of a caucus objective, I had my chairmanships taken away by Speaker Dillon. And back home, let me tell you, that was one of the best re-election tools in the box. Folks loved that I went against the caucus. But I didn't go against the caucus because I was looking at re-election. 
I went against the caucus because it was out of control regarding certain things. I feel more strongly about that today. I would not fit in the legislature today, quite frankly. And it's no secret that I think uh, the state has gone liberal. Certainly the legislature has gone liberal more so than at any time I think anyone can remember. I have a lot of friends that are still involved in state government, including the governor, many of her appointees, members of the legislature and staff. And I would not wish to be disrespectful in any way. It's not my intent. But the best I could eke out is a C in terms of a grade. Well, just just to clarify, I mean, who are you? How do you describe yourself to a stranger? So I tell folks that I am socially moderate. I mean, I like to think that I'm objective. I can see the sides. I'm socially moderate. I am fiscally conservative. I am a, I wouldn't call myself a, a budget hawk or anything like that, but I'm very mindful of where the money comes from and where it's proposed to go to. I'm also an independent thinker. And that doesn't set well with some people, Samantha. You know, if you're not part of the team 100%, you're not part of the team. That's the way it seems to me today. No, I, I, I do want to dive into one more question as we near the end of this segment. When you think about some of these very bold packages, uh, I just mentioned in the environmental clean energy by 2040. Yeah, the did. Reproductive Health Act legislation, um, a state central system for siting solar and wind projects. Yeah. Which, I mean, which of these gigantic packages do you think are going to make Democrats most vulnerable in 2040, in 2024? <laughs> of those you just mentioned, 100% renewable by 2035 or whatever the year is. That one, I just think that it's uh, beyond ambitious. I think that there are certain things that you want and there are certain things that are cast in stone today. And if you wish to chip away at the stone, it can't have a hard deadline necessarily. I guess the biggest thing that I'd point to right now was the glee that I had when I read the Detroit News a week ago and saw that Mary Barra of GM acknowledged that EVs are not going in the direction that GM predicted. You can't tell people you're going to get an EV and you're going to have to wait a half hour to get charged so you can drive another 100 miles. So I think that some of these things, they go too far. I agree that the state, by a majority vote, voted on certain things. But, for example, as I recall, Proposal 1 involved campaign finance and transparency. Where are we at with that? Why hasn't that been accomplished? Part of it is because, well, when I was in the majority, rather in the minority, or I had the ability to talk with a little more freeness, I could say this, that, or the other. But now, when it comes time to put up, we're talking about exclusions and a watered-down package for campaign finance that is not really what voters wanted. Yet, on the other hand, we'll say, well, in terms of abortion, this is what the voters wanted, so we're going to go ahead and do that. I'm Again, I, I consider myself to be more conservative than not. But I also remember one of the greatest things about my service to me personally when I was in the legislature is that I served in the majority and I served in the minority. When in the majority, I became a chairman on my first day. Now, that's a lot of responsibility. I think I did a good job with it. And part of what I did with it, and I told Speaker Dillon this afterwards, I'd let the minority chair, vice chair, see the stuff I was going to propose, let their caucus work on it a little bit, and let's privately come to a happy medium so we can at least get one or two of the uh, minority party's votes, if not more. Be nice to the people when you're on your way up, when you're in the majority. Because when you're not, you're going you're gonna to probably still have to work with those people when you're in the minority. And when I was in the minority, it paid dividends. 
I was able to go into the offices of the majority folks and have good conversations and still get things done when I was in the minority. Not everybody had that. Richard LeBlanc, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us on the MERS Monday podcast. It has been a pleasure. I hope you'll call upon me again. There is a house in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. is President Laura Sherman of the Michigan Energy Innovation Business Council, a trade organization dedicated to representing what they call advanced energy companies like Apex Clean Energy, Harvest Solar, and National Grid Renewables. A quick disclaimer, we are pre-recording this segment on Friday, October 27th, the morning after a lengthy session day in the Michigan State Senate, where Democrats approved a package calling on electric companies to run 100% on clean energy by 2040, which can include nuclear power, methane digesters that control organic waste decomposition, wind and solar and geothermal power, and according to the bill's language, natural gas utilizing carbon capture and storage, or CCS, technology. Now, Laura, your council has been involved in constructing this legislation and even commissioned a report claiming that Michigan families could collectively save $5.5 billion in household energy costs between now and 2050 through a mix of reducing natural gas and transportation fuel spending. With all of that being said, how do you feel about the final product we were presented with on Thursday evening in the state Senate? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. This has been a lengthy negotiation, as you said. I think there was a lot of give and take, and we, but we really got to a package of bills that is an incredibly strong set of legislation, really leading the nation in a number of ways, and we think will be a really strong step forward in terms of advancing clean energy, in terms of increasing renewables, increasing energy efficiency, increasing things like rooftop solar, and as you said, hopefully helping cut costs by ensuring we're investing in those resources that are lowest cost and that can help save Michiganders on their electricity bills. I know that there's a lot of concern about what this package means for the business climate in Michigan, especially by groups like the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, the Michigan Manufacturers Association. But one thing I think is interesting about you all is that you all are also a trade organization uh, with groups and companies and businesses that find this package quite appetizing. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about who your members are and the windows of opportunity that this presents for them specifically? Our members are, we have a very broad membership. You mentioned a few of our members, but we represent companies all across the what we call as you said advanced energy space so it's everything from the the wind and solar developers some of whom you mentioned storage developers and that's both utility scale and um, customers cited behind the meter storage energy efficiency implementers and energy efficiency contractors manufacturers of all of these components as well as uh, a growing segment of our membership in electric vehicles and charger manufacturing, as well as sort of maintenance. And then sort of all the folks who behind the scenes make this happen, you know, consultants and uh, experts. And then finally, we have a number of members who are large corporations that purchase renewables and that want to have set sustainability goals and see a value in policies like these to advance those goals. So those are those are folks like Steelcase and Meta, um, Hemlock Semiconductor, which is also a, a manufacturer. And, you know, by, by mentioning these names, I don't mean to suggest that any of these companies are specifically endorsing pieces of this legislation. We have set a number of policy priorities as an organization that we've all had input into, all of our members. And that's been our guiding light through this 
process, and a number of those policy priorities have been accomplished um, in the bills that passed the Senate last night. I was also just going to mention, because you, you mentioned that the opposition from other business organizations, the clean energy industry, the advanced energy industry in Michigan and across the country is growing by leaps and bounds. We have almost 124,000 jobs in clean energy, and those grew in, in, according to the last report, by almost 5% in 2022, which is faster than a lot of other sectors in the economy. And sort of, as I noted in our membership, one of the biggest growing sectors is in the advanced transportation and clean vehicles. So these are jobs all across the state. They're jobs that can't be exported. They're well-paying jobs, and we think that our members see these bills as an opportunity to increase those jobs and, and really do more work here in the state. I do want to ask, because I think it's important to note that when this package was initially introduced in April of this year, the goal was carbon-free by 2035. And then you saw over the summer in September, it got pushed up to carbon-free by 2040. Now it's going to be clean energy by 2040. Can you tell us what is going to be the role of natural gas under this legislation? Because I do wonder, is there a bit of a recognition that natural gas isn't just going to disappear overnight, that it still does have a long-lasting future here? The difference from carbon-free, in quotes, to clean energy is probably one of semantics. Um, the change that happened there between substitute, draft, wasn't substantive in nature. It didn't actually change any of the definitions. It was simply a, a wording change, and I wasn't part of the decision making on why that was done. There were some there's some interest from from labor groups in making sure that if natural gas can effectively capture the carbon dioxide that's being emitted and store it underground long term, that that should be considered carbon free, or as we're now calling it, clean. And I think that we can debate sort of how much carbon they need to capture and how much can be effectively captured from the EPA. I think a couple key provisions in here is, is that it has to be done, you know, by best available control technology set by the EPA. And that carbon dioxide really has to be stored underground long term. It can't be, for example, piped. To another state and used for enhanced oil recovery, which is sort of what a lot of the carbon dioxide pulled from natural gas plants is used for right now. I think there's a question and we'll have to see in the modeling and how this works out over time, whether those parameters will actually allow natural gas to be economically viable. These decisions will be made in integrated resource plan cases where the utilities and the commission and all the interveners are really looking at costs. As a result of if these bills go through all the way, they'll also have to look at impact on environmental justice communities, and they'll have to look at the impact on health, and they'll have to look at the impact on emissions. And I think all of those things combined are going to make it very hard for natural gas with carbon capture and storage to actually be economically viable. The prices, the reason that we are shifting already without these bills to wind and solar and storage is because those are the lowest cost resources. I don't think I see that changing into the future, especially with all of the provisions that are built into this package of bills. I, I'm a little bit curious. Does your organization work with anyone that specifically deals with CCS technology? Not currently, no. I think we have had in the past members who have parts of their business that do that, but we do not have any members right now, no. Now, I, I asked that because I'm a little bit curious of what does this package mean for carbon capture and storage and sequestrian technology in Michigan? Because I did hear some Republicans concerned that even though that that language is there in the bill, they still view this package as being an ultimate natural gas ban. Uh, what are kind of your thoughts on that? I mean, I think I would just reiterate that if that, if natural gas plus carbon capture that is actually stored underground is the most economical option, and the utilities can prove that in an integrated resource plan case, then that 
will be allowed by the commission, that plan would be approved. I am skeptical personally that it would be economical given the price declines in renewables and in storage, which is often used to replace natural gas peaking plants because you can you can do some of the same things. I'm I'm pretty skeptical that we would actually have natural gas plus carbon capture as the most cost-effective solution, but I think it's in there. It's an option, and we will have to see how that plays out. I think it's really important that we make sure that if natural gas is allowed, that it's not polluting additional carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is why these carbon capture and storage provisions are so key. You can't call natural gas without nearly 100% carbon capture and storage, carbon-free or clean. I want to pivot over to the conversation about cost right now, because on the Republican side, there is a concern about what does this mean for electricity bills. Now, you were a part of commissioning a report that talks about overall savings, that talks about federal investment that these bills can help lure for the state. What are your overall thoughts on that conversation about this two-part debate, your side kind of representing a new box of economic opportunity and the other side representing concerns about accelerated costs? Everyone in Michigan is obviously very concerned about costs. Our electricity rates are very high. I think it's important to first be very honest about what is causing those cost increases. It is not the renewables that we are building. It is the lack of investment historically in the distribution system and the need for the utilities to now make sure that they are improving the distribution system because we have some of the worst reliability and the worst outages in the entire country. So that baseline, that is what is causing our high rates. You know, we've been involved in these cases at the commission time and time again. Those are the things that are causing costs to go up. It's also important that as we move to more renewables, these determinations will be made in integrated resource plan cases, which, as I said, means that we're looking at the least cost options. So least cost options right now, what the utilities are investing in are wind, solar, and storage, and energy efficiency. These bills only enhance that. So the report that we did looked at policies like the ones that are being considered now. Obviously, we didn't do it overnight, so it doesn't reflect the final bills. But what we found is that compared to status quo, so compared to the rate increases that you would see without these bills, these policies will bring in, as you said, more than $5 billion in federal funding and save households about $145 every year. So these policies, compared to the status quo, from the modeling we've done, are going to decrease overall costs. But we really need to, I I hate to sort of shift gears already because we haven't gotten these done, but once we do get these done, we really need to shift into our focus on affordability and energy burden and making sure that we take other steps to decrease those costs on the distribution system that are not related to these bills. It's sort of a red herring to claim they are. And I think especially Representative Scott, Chair Scott, and some of the pieces she's working on, we really need to shift over to that and and focus on those issues next and make sure that people who are hardest hit by our high costs and our outages can actually afford to, to get the power they need. What type of, op, you know, let's say that the package that was approved last night is exactly what is going to get signed into law by the governor. What do you imagine those early days and the new opportunities to look like for the companies and the organizations that you represent? Oh, that's a hard question. I think the simplest, but probably one of the biggest pieces here is that if these get passed, we are going to increase the limit on rooftop solar from 1% all the way to 10% across the state. And immediately that will have an immediate effect in Southwest Michigan, because right now customers living in Indiana, Michigan power territory cannot install rooftop solar because the program is closed. So immediate first effect, our companies working in Southwest Michigan and those residents who want rooftop solar have an opportunity. So that's sort of the sort of most immediate first effect. And then I think moving forward, as the utilities file their future cases and look at what they are going to do in their integrated resource plan cases, I think these bills allow 
or will push a far greater investment in renewables and in energy storage. And so for our members, that then creates opportunity to help the utilities by building those projects and, and selling it to them or by constructing the projects and doing contracts with utilities. It also helps local farmers and communities who want to host those projects to have the added benefit of the tax revenue. So I think those are sort of a bit down the line longer term, and these will probably take some time to put into effect, but those are sort of the first things I see. Now, this legislation also does permit some flexibility for utilities and also some off-ramps where if it seems that it's becoming too expensive, that there's a reliability concern, uh, the MPSC does have the power to, do I dare say, is it like putting a pause on this legislation so that a utility provider can do what they need to do? Is that how you view it? What exactly is the the deal with these off-ramps? They are... They're extension of the deadlines for the um, Renewable Portfolio Standard and the Clean Energy Standards of two years, and they'll require the utilities to petition the commission and prove that they can't comply for one of the four reasons listed. I would imagine that, that this is going to be fairly hard to prove. They are going to have to prove that they've made commercially reasonable efforts and they haven't gotten bids or they haven't been able to get projects lined up because of supply chain issues. My guess is that the utilities will not have those problems and will be able to comply in time. But this is to make sure because we can't control what's happening in the world. We can't control all of the, the things that are going on in terms of the global uh, market and, and labor issues, et cetera, that there's an ability to, to give a little bit of an extension. Republican Senator John DeMoose offered a unsuccessful amendment on the floor on Thursday evening that ultimately said that if the cost of energy were to become higher than the rate of inflation, this legislation and its provisions would be halted. Uh, obviously, it failed by a party line, but why do you personally feel that this sort of pause type of effort wouldn't work? I think it's a misread, as I explained previously, of what is driving the rate increases in Michigan. I've been involved in rate cases for many years. Uh, Michigan EIBC intervenes in in rate cases for several of the investor-owned utilities in Michigan. I have never seen an argument that they need to increase rates because they're investing in renewable energy or energy efficiency. They're choosing to make those investments because those are the lower cost forms of energy. The reason the rates go up is, as I said, they have not historically invested in the distribution system and we've got failed wires, we've got failed transformers, we've got you know trees falling on wires that haven't been trimmed appropriately. Those are the reasons that they're, the costs are increasing. So tying these bills to utility rates doesn't make any sense. It's not cause and effect. So I don't think that it would make sense to pause bills that are decreasing costs that we've shown using modeling and that just logically don't relate to increasing costs simply because, you know, the utilities aren't making appropriate other investments or the commission is making different decisions about rates. I do want to ask one more question. On Thursday morning, the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition put out a opposition letter to this package. Does that make you concerned about members of the environmentalist community and network not all being united right now on supporting this package? I think that's a tough question to answer. We are not an environmental organization. We're a business organization. So I don't want to speak on behalf of members of the environmental community and those organizations that I don't represent. You know, I will say our members work in these communities. We have many members who are based in Michigan, who are based in environmental justice communities. We have businesses who work with environmental justice communities. We want to make sure moving forward that the energy system works for those folks and that if there are pieces that were left out of these bills because of utility opposition to certain provisions, we would like to find ways to work on those moving forward. And I think that's one of the most important things and one of the things that 
Chair Scott, as I mentioned, has shown a strong interest in working on is how do we address affordability and how do we address outages? We have a couple of bills we've been working on that would provide incentives for low-income customers to install rooftop solar and storage so that they can ride through outages themselves. We think that's a key part of this package, but I think there's other pieces related to outage credits, related to distribution system planning that could really help and make a difference. And I think that as a business community, we would like to build those bridges and work with folks who want to make sure that that energy burden and that issues in those communities are not left behind. Do you have any additional things you'd like to add before we wrap up today's interview? I think the only thing I'd add is um, we really encourage the House to move on these bills as well as on bills that are pending to allow these renewables and storage projects to be built, which to move the siting decisions to the state for these most uh, for these largest projects. And we really uh, encourage both chambers to get all of those bills done before they adjourn. We think this is a unique opportunity to really make some positive progress. That was President Laura Sherman of the Michigan Energy Innovation Business Council. Thank you so much for taking your time to join us today. And I also hope that you're able to get some rest over the weekend before we dive back into legislative energy palooza is what I'm nicknaming it. Absolutely. We're all a little tired, uh, but we're not giving up yet. So thank you so much for your time today. I'm going to love you differently. I'll give you electricity and give it to you. And even if I could, I wouldn't know you. Joining us today is Greg Donahue, the Chief Executive Officer of the Michigan Health Council. The council has been working on a healthcare workforce index assessing 36 healthcare occupations across the state, ranging from paramedics and surgical technologists to physician assistants and registered nurses. Uh, among the various key findings of this report that they ultimately did, uh, they found that nearly all occupations analyzed are projected to experience workforce shortages between now and 2032. Craig, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Smith, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the interest. So to just kind of dive into this, uh, can you tell me who exactly is your council and what is kind of some of the biggest red flags that you were able to gather through this report? Sure. Um, so the Michigan Health Council's uh, a nonprofit workforce oriented uh, organization. We've been around since 1943. And in one capacity or another, we've been working in healthcare workforce, either recruiting physicians or creating awareness around health careers, various programs around expanding uh, the distribution of professionals around the state of Michigan. Um, but today, what we're talking about in terms of the healthcare index. A couple of years ago, we began to build a research and data center. We've been fortunate enough to receive a grant from the Michigan Health Endowment Fund to do some work, do the specific work that we're talking about. In a lot of ways, what we found was, was just reinforcing what we've known anecdotally for quite a while, that we have challenges across the board in terms of workforce shortages, both today and looming into the future. And so really this was an opportunity for us to establish a baseline of where we are today so that the next step is what do we do about it? And what solutions can we start to um, convene people around? And what can we implement? And, and what can we do in the short term and then longer term plan for more sustainability? And so really that's the, the concept behind this work is again, to paint that picture establish the platform, and then talk and convene stakeholders around solutions. Now, the, the things that we did find, again, reinforcing what we kind of knew anecdotally, is that while some professions are in better shape than others, there's still problems in terms of distribution. For example, if you look at the dentists in the index, they're pretty well positioned in terms of shortage. However, the distribution around the state is a challenge. There are many counties that don't have dental care, for example. Physician specialties, OB, same situation. And then strikingly on the on the lower end of the scale, the lower wage, wage professions suffering from a low wages and be high turnover really are in serious, seriously dire straits. And so this gives us an opportunity to really direct resources to those occupations that require assistance immediately. And then again, plan for long, long-term 
more systemic changes. Can you tell us a little bit more about who is expected to experience the most tremendous of these workforce shortages? When you look at the numbers, I think that the biggest impact really is, is probably not a surprise is nursing, just because of the size of the proportion that they make up of the workforce population. It's the biggest group. And so when something work happens there, it has a tremendous impact. They're a frontline in terms of patient care in various settings, health systems, acute care, long-term care. And so when, when there are issues there, it's felt across the board in terms of access to care. It gets a lot of attention, although it is a big problem to change. And so it, it, it is, again, we need to get stakeholders engaged and at the table to develop solutions where we're all pulling in the right direction and making a difference, both short-term and long-term. Can you just reiterate to our listeners, like what was the time frame in which you were doing these assessments? So the work began really in January. So we've done a lot in a short amount of time, quite frankly. Um, we pulled together a team of people internally to start um, doing the data collection, the, the pulling of the data and compiling of the data and then doing some of the analysis and building the index, deciding on that approach, um, which I think is, is unique. I haven't seen uh, this before where the professions are ranked in this way in order to look at healthcare workforce as a whole. I think that is one of the unique pieces of, of the work that we've done is that we haven't just looked at nursing, for example, we've looked at the entire workforce ecosystem to try to, again, look at where the biggest challenges are so that we can drive work programs, resources to those places. So again, we started in January, began collecting data, doing the analysis, and then started developing the report towards the middle of the summer and released that in, I believe it was June. So roughly six months to get the index up and running. But again, this is a first step in the process. This is, this is a multi-pronged approach. It's, it's providing that, that information and in, in, in data-based burning platform, if you will, and then looking at existing initiatives around the state to see what's happening today, where there's overlaps, what's working well, what's not, and then looking for where the gaps are so that we can drive solutions and bring stakeholders together to talk about what's, what's next and what solutions we can put together as a state and as regions and as communities. So I do kind of want to go over some numbers that you include in your report. And sure. I noticed that you feature some calculations and estimations from various organizations across industries. Mm -hmm. So in January 2022, the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services, Fire Chiefs, and EMS practitioners reported a shortage of nearly 1,000 EMTs and paramedics. Going over to the Backers Hospital Review, the world may be short by 5.7 million nurses by 2030. Um, Michigan ranked 16th of 50 states um, out of 50 states when it came to projected shortage of nurses throughout 2030. Looking at these numbers, how did we ultimately get here? I know that the pandemic created a lot of stress, a lot of burnout to a workforce that was already aging. Uh, what are kind of some things that you found when people expressed their top grievances in 2023? Well, I think it's a lot of the things that you highlight. I, the, the, first of all, this is not a new problem as evidenced by the fact that we've been around since 1943 and we still have work to do. The pandemic just really highlighted and, and exacerbated what was an existing systemic issue in terms of generating enough nurses, for example, we take nurses, for example, since you mentioned that as a, as a figure, to, to, to meet patient care needs. There's various factors that go into that. Clinical education space is, is routinely called out as a, a pipeline issue in terms of nursing, creating more nursing workforce. Other issues were related to retention. Nursing, again, for example, various statistics show that within the first three years, a huge percentage of nurses leave the profession. Um, they, they, they just go through the educational process and then leave. And so that's a big challenge and an opportunity. Aging population, not only in terms of the patients that um, we care for, boomers are, are now consuming more care with multiple chronic conditions and the workforce that's caring for them are in a similar situation. It, it mirrors and parallels. But then the pandemic comes and it, it exacerbates the problem and expedites the exit uh, at the top end of the profession. And so, again, it created a crisis moment where many of the healthcare organizations around the state have now made healthcare workforce a critical piece of their strategy in terms of success and delivering care. They, they, they recognize now that this is 
essential. And so I think that's a shift. It, it didn't have that type of focus prior to the pandemic. So I think that it really made this uh, critical and important to providing care and access to care. Well, doing this report, was there anything that genuinely surprised you? I can't say that anything really surprised me, to be honest with you, because again, I've, I've been working in this field for a little while. So I've been immersed in the challenges and the, the shortages talks, both in, for, for physicians and nurses and for a number of years. But I guess when you look at the whole picture, the thing that surprises me that it is the shortages are across the board. It's not just those, those ones that we norm, normally speak about. High visibility professions, physicians, nursing, dentists, it's dental assistants, dental hygienists, paramedics, as you had said. Across the board, we are looking at, at workforce shortages, and it requires attention, and it requires solutions, it requires awareness, it, it requires all of us to make it a priority. It, it can't be uh, an undertaking of any one organization or care provider. We all need to be in the same place, rowing in the same direction, and hopefully that's where we can get to from at the end of the day when this index is consumed, that the hub and the collection of the initiatives that exist is examined and look and we find gaps and we convene stakeholders at the state level, regional level, that we are rowing in the same direction. Everybody's going to the right place to develop proper workforce that people need at the right time in the right place so that everyone has access to care. That's ultimately the goal. I want to look at page 18 of the report, uh, the Michigan Health Workforce Index detailed, where you have a column titled turnover. So mm -hmm. is that turnover between 2022 through 2032? No, it's a it's the it's a one year snapshot of turnover. I'm looking at it, and some of these seem to have very high turnover percentages. Mm -hmm. I see with home health and personal care aides, it's at 86%. Um, I see with nursing assistants, it's at 88%. Um, mm -hmm. Occupational therapy assistants, 84%. When you were looking at places that had occupations that had this high turnover percentage, uh, what did you often hear was the reason why? Quite frankly, we we haven't gotten to the point where we're digging into the reason why specifically, although that is something that is to follow in the, in some of the next steps and the conversations and the convening of stakeholders. But I will say that it, looking at the data, it is pretty consistent that the, the low-wage entry position jobs are the ones that suffer from the high turnover rates. So for instance, um, work in a nursing home, an MA or uh, a nurse assistant, uh, low-wage job, the, the work is demanding, and there are other opportunities. And so there you're competing against other employment opportunities that exist in the same pay range. So if the average rate of a CNA is $15 an hour and you can work at McDonald's for the same pay, it becomes a challenge to compete against other opportunities. And I think that that is what we've seen at the lower end of the, of the wage scale. So most of those that you've pointed out are at that lower end of the wage scale. And you can see that in the ranking. How do you fix these concerns with meaningful policy that goes beyond just simply throwing money at the problem? The solution that we've begun to kind of coalesce around, at least internally, and include in some of the speaking points where we're out trying to engage uh, stakeholders is we need to create pathways for those folks to move along the healthcare continuum of employment so that it's an entry point, but not an end point. We need to provide folks with the knowledge and information that if I start at position A, these are the various pathways I can go to get to position M or whatever the case might, whatever that end point is, whatever that terminal spot is. If I start as an MA, how do I become a master prepared nurse? How do I become a nurse practitioner? How do I become a physical therapist? And what is the pathway and provide detailed information about how I do it? what programs are available, what resources are there to support me, and then provide some sort of wraparound services to help them navigate that pathway all along the way. So that's some of the things that we're trying to coalesce around in terms of sharing what solutions might look like. When you think about issues dealing with the quality of life in Michigan and also wanting people to reside and live healthy lives in the state, uh, what do you imagine to be the overall biggest consequences of not efficiently and quickly fixing these workforce shortages? 
Well, I, it all, as I had said earlier, it comes back to access to care. It shouldn't be an issue that I can't get care because of where I live. And that is more and more the case. And so, you know, I, I think, again, if we don't invest now, it's very similar to, to the public health crisis. You know, if we don't invest in public health and, and then we have a crisis and then we say, well, how do we fix this? Well, we need to invest upstream. And so that's really the the opportunity, I don't want to call it the, the pandemic an opportunity, but the opportunity to focus our attention on this, this crisis so that we can invest upstream so that down the road, we all have access to care that we need. I think, I mean, from a big picture stepping back, that's what we're trying to do, but it's hard and it's it's difficult work and there's, there's lots of pieces to it and lots of people that need to come to the table to, to provide solutions because no, again, no individual organization or agency is going to fix this on their own. It takes all of us working together, recognizing how significant this problem is and doing something about it. I wonder, has it been challenging to get your message across? Because I feel like across various different industries, you know, there is a teacher shortage, there is a childcare shortage, there is a healthcare shortage. I do some people view a report like this and just say, oh, well, isn't that a problem everywhere? And isn't it kind of inevitable at this point? Yes, I would agree that that is the case. However, I will say that since we've released this, there has been a tremendous amount of interest, which is very reassuring that we're doing something that's important because people are interested in it. But you're right. This is there are there are many issues that face us today, and and you point out the the teacher shortage that has begun again because of the pandemic, uh, probably exacerbating a problem similar to to what we're describing here. There's lots of challenges that face us every day. We need to communicate so that people can establish priorities. And if we don't know where we start, we can't kind of make that case that this is worth the effort, I guess. And so really the index is the first step in a process from my perspective. It's not um, something that we're gonna deliver and say, hot, there you go, we're done. It, th this is just the beginning of the journey of trying to fix things long-term going forward. How do we compare with other states? Well, you know, I, I think that the, the challenges and the problems are not unique. Distribution issues, the general shortages are consistent across the country. The solutions and the place where folks are, I think are slightly different. Um, some people have invested more upfront. There's um, potentially more collaboration happening in other places, but everybody is trying to come up with solutions because again, this is a crisis across the nation. And it's not, again, not something unique to Michigan. So what is your next step? You said that this index is overall the beginning of a journey. What mm -hmm. comes next? What comes next is out of this, the notion with the work from the health, supported by the Health Endowment Fund is to come up with a statewide plan. And I don't want to say that at the end of the two-year period of the grant that we'll come up with a plan and everybody will start implementing and it'll be done. What I mean by a plan is that we're going to develop some recommendations out of what we find in the index, what we find when we go out and see what initiatives exist around the state, identify where the gaps are, and then make recommendations so that we can convene stakeholders, convene people that care about this so that we can collectively come together with a solution and develop a plan that we can implement. And so ultimately, we can do all of this work and have these conversations and a report can sit on a shelf. But at the end of the day, we need to take action and, and develop solutions. And so ultimately that's the, that's the win at the end is developing solutions that can be implemented. We're kind of preparing for the legislature to leave in November sometime this, this coming month. How do you feel that the legislature has done this year? Do you wish that there was more of an aggressive focus on healthcare at the beginning of 2023? Well, I, I think that, you know, we are not a, a lobbying organization. Um, that's for other other organizations to do and, and be their priority. I will say that, that, and I don't think this is a bad thing, that the legislatures, from my perspective, and this is my personal opinion, that they focused on education, which I don't think is inappropriate. They've spent a lot of time and resources in that place. It's certainly necessary. You know, I, I think that this is, back to the beginning, this, is an, this has just been such an ongoing problem. It's kind of been accepted that, you know, there's issues, there's challenges, but we have other priorities. And so, um, you know, we'll see going forward. I think it's at this point, our opportunity is to engage state agencies, develop some coordination across the agencies from MDE to the Department of Health and Human Services to LARA to LEO and get some coordination and some synergy across those organizations. So again, that we're working together, 
which will change the equation, I think, in terms of the legislature and what they know about this issue and what we think we can do. Thank you so much, Craig Donahue, the CEO of the Michigan Health Council. Thank you for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you. And that is going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to Westland City Clerk and former state representative Richard LeBlanc for joining us, as well as Michigan Energy Innovation Business Council President Laura Sherman and Chief Executive Officer Craig Donahue of the Michigan Health Alliance. As always, I'd like to give a huge thanks to MERS editor Kyle Malin and our publisher, the boss, John Rurink. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast was provided by Jeff Smith, who's affiliated with Mark Basher Audio and Okemos, which is responsible for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. <laughs>